this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters Friday. Get tickets now. It's the New Books and Food Podcast. Hi, it's Alan Salkin from New Books and Food. I've got Josh Kuhn here. He is the author of To Live and Dine in L.A., Menus and the Making of the Modern City. Got a forward by Roy Choi, who's a super chef in L.A. Hi, Josh. Hi, Alan. How are you? I'm good. It's warm in New York. It's almost L.A.-like. We try. We try to help when we can. So the book is an amazing collection of, and I'm tired of the word amazing, but I just used it, um, of it's sort of the, the core of it are images of menus from Los Angeles dating back to the 1850s all the way up until I think the 1980s. Um, and there's you, – you've written the te- most of the text between it. Um, I just came upon the image of Tom O'Shanter Inn. Tom, o, Tom, Tom O'Shanter Inn. Tam. Tam, Tam O'Shanter Inn. <laughs> there you go. A man in a kilt, man in a plaid kilt. So – and Roy Troy wrote an introduction. And what, what this is based on is the menu collection of the Los Angeles Public Library. Um, tell me if I'm getting anything wrong, but how did the project start? Um, well, the project started, um, I had worked with the library, um, uh, through the, through through the library foundation, uh, a couple of years ago on a, on a project called songs in the key of Los Angeles, um, which, uh, was based on their sheet music collection. They've got, they have among their many special collections that are incredible. Um, they have the sheet music collection with about a hundred thousand, uh, songs and songbooks, and they asked me if I wanted to come through that collection um, with a group of my students and uh, kind of put together uh, something. Um, we weren't sure what it was going to be um, based on the sheet music and what uh, these, these early song sheets told us about early music history in Los Angeles. Um, and that, uh, that, that project um, not only produced a book, but produced a series of concerts and public engagement opportunities that... Um, I think we're really productive for the city and um, started a lot of great conversations. Uh, and it, it got us thinking that we should, we should do more of these and try to dig into other special collections at the library and really going from music to food made, made a lot of sense. And so it was the, you know, they've got this extraordinary menu collection of about 9,000 menus um, and mostly available already, at, you know, in some kind of digital form through the library's website. Um, and, uh, we wanted to do, uh, a major project, both book and a series of programs and exhibitions, uh, based on this extraordinary, uh, archive of menus. How many, how does the book fit into, how, how did the book fit into the music project? Like was obviously not everybody who attended the events bought the book. How many, if you know, how many books were printed? How, how was it sold? I'm kind of curious in the, about these details. I, I wish um, I, <laughs> you know, I try, Alan, really hard not to think about those things or else I won't sleep at night. Yeah. Uh, um, but, you know, r- really for me, 
both the book and the public programs that um, that we did for that project and that we're doing for the, for this one um, really is an attempt to to both kind of respect the parameters of the archive and the collection as something that's already been preserved, taken care of by librarians for decades um, and indexed by librarians. But then, you know, once you deal with the actual collection itself, how do you bring it to life? How do you um, curate it and tell stories from it um, as a way to bring uh, larger public audiences uh, into conversation with these artifacts? Uh, in a way that is both historical, um, but also very much um, uh, geared toward the present and the future. Uh, and, and I think that um, for me, it's been a really, um, you know, I've learned a lot about how to mm-hmm. um, deal with historical objects uh, and use them to get people to think about the world that they're living in right now. It's something that, that it's been a le- really great learning process. Uh, and I think menus are, are such an incredible way to get people to think about uh, food history and food politics and, um, you know, all those kinds of issues. So you, you, to, to go back to where I probably should have started, cause people writing instruction. Number one is make the people care about the audience, care about the people who we're talking about. So I need to make them care about you. You, you are up and you talked about your students. You, you are a professor at the lesser of the two major, um, Los Angeles universities, right? Wow. Now I'm just not going to care about you. Alan. <laughs> <laughs> I went. I went to Berkeley, actually, not UCLA. But you're, you're at USC, right? I'm at USC. Um, went to graduate school at Berkeley, so we have that in common. Oh, good, good, um, good. Yes, I passed the test. Um, uh, and uh, yes, I'm a professor in the Annenberg School of Communication and Journalism uh, at USC. Um, and I worked with a group of my undergraduate and graduate students um, on this project to um, help me go through the collection of menus, but also did um, uh, the bulk of the primary research going through early newspapers, uh, early advertisements, um, early ephemera to really try to put together um, uh, what, what we believe is, is something that's the first of its kind, the first ever kind of um, uh, uh, large scale uh, history of food culture and restaurant culture in Los Angeles. It's funny because, you know, I wrote a book about the history of the Food Network, and I'm sitting on a lot of Food Network ephemera, press releases, um, you know, the hard hat that they gave out uh, when they opened their new headquarters. And I've thought about – and also just long interviews, you know, that I didn't use all of and transcripts and – I've thought about donating them to the um, NYU, uh, you know, Fails has a food library. But it's – I love – I personally love going through these things because they each – you know, as you say or maybe as, you know, in some of the essays in the book, the menus each are so evocative of just the – the, even the, the graphic design, the fonts that are used, the the way that the you know the fish or the food is drawn in the corners, the every little thing, and it's hard to. I mean, you could write an essay describing every little thing, but there it is, and it's um, it's like another LA-based singer, David Gates, used to say, "A, a picture is worth a thousand words," and um, so. Did and I'm sure as a student that must have been fun for them to. I love digging through. You know, at Berkeley there was the great rare books library, Bancroft, where I actually worked for a while. There's nothing like going through the stuff itself. And in a way, since people don't seem to want to go to libraries, maybe these books are are a solution. Like here, here's our research. You know, check it out. Yeah, I think I, you know, just at least especially with my undergraduate students, both with you know both with the sheet music and these restaurant menus. 
you know, for them to, they're so accustomed to thinking about archival work as looking through JPEGs online, yeah. uh, which is totally fine and wonderful. Um, but then to, you know, to have that, that, that physical visceral experience of going into a rare books room, um, going into a, you know, a, a special area of a certain floor of the library where only librarians dare to go. Um, and they get to go through these file cabinets and look at, um, you know, menus from, from 1875, from, you know, 1900, that bear street addresses that they recognize from, you know, where they go out at night in downtown Los Angeles now. Or, um, and I think it's a really important moment um, for them to kind of interact with those objects. Um, and it kind of wakes them up to material history um, uh, really as a lost art for their generation. There's a smell to old paper and to a pleasant smell mostly to being in an old library and there's a feel to the paper and they don't even make some of these kinds of paper anymore. That's right. And I think a lot of it also is that, you know, these menus um, bury the traces of the people uh, who held them. Um, and, and, and so I think for them to actually be able to pick up a menu that was held by somebody in 1905 is pretty special. It, it puts you, uh, uh, you know, into a kind of living relationship to, you know, to the history of your city. Were you, did you get your graduate degree at the journalism program? <laughs> no, in ethnic studies. Hmm. Um, what, um, oh, so I'm, I'm reading some of the things that I thought to ask you when I was, what, what, if, if, if you're reading these, your, this book, um, which, which also, by the way, has, Essays by people, the legendary uh, Jonathan Gold. Have you seen the documentary, by the way? Which I mean, I haven't, that's, I haven't had a chance yet. I only mentioned it because I'm in it. Um, <laughs> that's a joke, but I am in it. Um, so, what did the menu say about the history of LA? You know, that town that supposedly doesn't have a history. Well, I think, you know, they say a whole bunch um, They're you know, like I treat these menus as much uh, kind of documents of, of, you know, what was served at a restaurant. That's just that that's layer one. Um, you know, really, I, 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 I think we should approach menus much in the way that we approach a historical photograph or the way we approach a novel um, or a short story. Um, you know, the, they have so many different layers and they tell us about. Um, neighborhood. They tell us about cultural identity. They tell us about race, about gender, about changes in you know in pricing and economic structures. Um, they're they're these really humble, simple um, documents. These kind of humble texts that uh, open up into a kind of uh, you know almost infinite um, a view of of the city. Well, let's drill down a little bit because was there was there something uh, well. What was your favorite one of them? Uh, it's like choosing children, between yeah, your children. Yeah. Um, um, you know, I, I think I have favorite ones that, that did different things for me. I mean, on, on, on the one hand, I think probably the, the one that was the most important in terms of starting the journey was, was the, the, the first, the earliest menu in the collection, which is from 1875, uh, was from a, um, a banquet at Don Mateo Keller's Vineyard in downtown Los Angeles. It's the earliest menu in the library's collection. Um, and so just to be able to, to kind of see something that from, from, from that early, 
um, when Los Angeles was a very small town. Um, and, you know, you learn from this banquet menu that, okay, there was a vineyard in the middle of downtown Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the guy who owned that vineyard was also the guy who owned the land that became Malibu. Um, he was an Irish immigrant who loved uh, Mexican, you know, Mexican and Spanish culture <clears throat> so much that he changed his name from Matthew to Don Mateo. Um, and uh, here you've got this banquet at, where it served all these different, you know, kind of this like a uh, carnival of meats um, and um, local wines. Uh, and it really was a kind of window, you know, a window into, into early dining culture where you didn't have that many restaurants as we know of them today in the 1870s in Los Angeles. Um, but you certainly had a lot of banquet menus and a lot of feasts and balls. And so that to me was a real wake up call for how to kind of recalibrate and think differently uh, ab- about that 19th century period. What's the strangest menu item that you saw? What something you could order? Um, one I like a lot is there's a barbecue place that actually Cynthia Hawkins, who's a, a chef uh, in Watts, she she rewrites that menu um, uh, in the back of the book, and it's a uh, it's a barbecue uh, spot um, called Smith's that bragged that it bar- that among the things it barbecued um, was bear. Bear. So I thought that was pretty good. <laughs> you know? Who doesn't crave a little bear on a Sunday, you know? Oh, Smith's Wood Barbecue, I see this. Yeah. So what you did was you took the old covers and you asked new she- current chefs to write. How would that work? Yeah, so part of – well, when I started the project, I knew that, you know, because I'm not a chef, um, you know, I wanted to – just like I did with the Sheet Music Project where I took old songs and I gave those songs – to contemporary musicians and ask them to interact with them and reinterpret them and record them in some cases for the very first time. Um, I wanted to take that same spirit. So we called this remixing the menu. Uh, and I took vintage menus and I offered a few different choices um, to about eight different chefs from different um, walks of life, different parts of the city. Um, and they each chose one and they reacted to it. In most cases, they rewrote the menu for how they would cook it um, if they were going to serve it in their own restaurant. Uh, and it was really fun to see how different people, you know, what they changed, why they would change it, um, what felt current, what felt outdated, um, things like that. Yeah, well, I see Susan Finnegar took on the, the Mudhead Tavern. Well, that's her restaurant, Mudhead Tavern. She so she she took on Angel's Flight, which was a um, a restaurant in downtown Los Angeles in the nineteen seventies. Right. Based. Okay. And so, so that's that's why I'm okay. So. I, Explain it. So she, she. This is basically a a mud hen tavern menu that would be inspired by Angel's Flight. <clears throat> yes, exactly. So we have the original uh, menus in the book, and then we have the contemporary chefs rewriting of those menus alongside them. Okay. Her first course is Kaya Toast, a Singaporean hangover cure. Malaysian pandemi toasted with coconut, kaya, jam, fried egg, and dark soy. It sounds pretty good. Um, did you did you ever come across any sagebrush cantina menus? Um, I didn't, and I, I you know I don't know if the library's got it in the collection, but I, I didn't. It's not in the book. I'm always curious about that place because I partly grew up in Calabasas, and uh, talking about LA as a small town, people you know the, the mission down near, I guess, around Alvarado Street and Union Station. I think that's where it sort of was. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, it was a small town. And then Calabasas, which is now famous because of the Kardashians and Mr. Jenner, 
um, uh, you know, was it known as this lawless um, old west town, which was like a day's ride from from you know Mission Los Angeles, and uh, the Sagebrush Cantina is this restaurant there that goes back a while, but um, there's all kinds of claims about how far it goes back. It's from I don't know if you know anything about that. Just a personal curiosity. Yeah, I don't. I don't. But now, but I certainly will go look now. Um, why is 1965 so significant in the history of LA menus, or is it just that it was significant in the history of LA and the menus reflect it? Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, I think that restaurant menus respond to um, you know shifts, larger shifts in society, culture, and politics. Um, in 1965, there was a lot going on in Los Angeles that was reshaping and restructuring and shaking up the city. Uh, it was the year of the Watts uprisings. Uh, it was the year, really, when South Los Angeles um, kind of is put on the national map uh, as an emblem of the um, inequalities and struggles and strife of Los Angeles. Um, 65 was also the a year of a major new immigration a bill that opened the city up to new immigrants from across Asia and Latin America. Um, so you start seeing things, for example, um, post-1965, uh, when you really start to see Chinese uh, restaurant menus changing from being quote-unquote Chinese, which meant Cantonese before 1965, to being specifically Mandarin or Sichuan or kind of regional Chinese menus. Same with Mexican food. It, 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 you see a lot of menus go from being uh, calling themselves Mexican to identifying as Sonoran uh, or Oaxacan, um, uh, et cetera. So it's a really interesting moment um, for thinking about how demographics uh, change in the city, um, how consciousness about inequality was um, uh, kind of at the front of people's minds, uh, and how restaurant menus are uh, you know, just one example of the kinds of things that we could look at that, that reflect that moment. Um, I was just actually turned. To, I had turned to the page Yihongui, which is a Chinese chop suey and noodles joint on Apoblasa Street. Um, when did Chinese were, were Chinese restaurants for Chinese people or for um, you know, non-Chinese, and, and did the menus tell that story, or were there always sure. two menus? Yeah. I mean, and I also know that this gets into the whole, like, you know, when did people start eating other cuisines, and when did that become sort of a hobby? Right. Well, certainly Chinese restaurants, I think, always, um, you know, had a dual function. On the one hand, there were Chinese restaurants that really did cater to uh, specifically Chinese audiences, particularly in the what used to be called Old Chinatown and Original Chinatown in Los Angeles, which got demolished when 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 Union Station was built. Um, but but as early as the the early kind of early 1900s, um, 1902, three, four, and five, um, there's evidence of Chinese restaurants, uh, particularly through the, the kind of cultural vehicle um, of chop suey. Uh, really reaching out to to the non Chinese, um, and it wasn't long before, uh, you know, by 1910, that um, chop suey and chow mein were, I, I think you could say, one of the very earliest kind of food crazes, cross cultural food crazes in Los Angeles, where people were coming from um, different neighborhoods um, and different um, backgrounds uh, to all eat chop suey, and you start seeing restaurants advertising using English language menus. Um, uh, there's an article that I talk about in the book um, that was published in the Los Angeles Times about 
um, this mysterious uh, noodle lady, uh, a white woman who was known to frequent chop suey joints. Um, and that was a cause of great scandal. You know, who was this woman and why did she love chop suey so much? So she might be the kind of earliest example of a kind of, uh, you know, a food pioneer that becomes so common in contemporary foodie culture. It does take that some somebody needs to, you know, go in with their metaphorical machete. And I always notice that there's a there's one um, dumpling place on the Lower East Side that's not very much different than any of the others. But for some reason, somebody walked in there and wrote an article that was probably in Time Out New York when it mattered in the 90s. Right. And now there's a line of, you know, tourists outside this one hole in the wall. Uh, and it is. It's just because it, it, it was sort of made safe. Yeah. Um, and it, it's also interesting that you mentioned Sonoran specifically. And, you know... It, you probably know in most of the country they still don't know the difference. It's Mexican food or it's Mexican food. There's no regional, which is even Chinese food obviously still has to fight that battle. Yeah, I think that that you know I can only speak about Los Angeles, but that is certainly beginning to change drastically. Where you know now um, you know regional Chinese menus uh, have, you know are, are are the focus of many um, uh, kind of food journeys and people who are obsessed with trying all the newest restaurants and the newest mini malls from the, from the, the, the smallest, um, uh, regions in China that are now represented, um, to, you know, Mexican specialties that, you know, people who, who want Oaxacan one night want Sonor and, you know, another night or, you know, tacos from Puebla. Um, I think that there's a real growth in a kind of regional consciousness that maybe isn't citywide or fully mainstream now, um, but certainly much more so than 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 there was, you know, let's say, fifteen years ago. Is there a book on the history of chop suey? There's, I think, it, I, I, I might, there might be two. Really? <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I, I know that there's one. Well, there's there's at least one, but I think that um, you know, histories of Chinese. There's been in the last three years or so. There's been a series of books and 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 exhibitions nationally. Um, on the history of Chinese food in the United States. And, and, and all of those have to kind of grapple um, with the shadow of chop suey. <laughs> Is it known where, I know we're talking about other people's books, so we both have, you have maybe half or three quarters known, I don't know at all, but... Um is is it known where chop suey started in America? Was it Los Angeles? Somebody knows that. I, I don't yeah. think it was Los Angeles. Let's, let's talk about what we know. You know, I, I don't know... <laughs> So you you come at this for, uh, sort of from as a media kind of archival. You don't come from uh, being a food studies person. No, no. I mean, I'm not I'm not trained in food studies, but um, I come at this from a kind of you know the perspective of a of a, a scholar of culture um, uh, and a scholar of the city. When you're now, but but you surely must be a connoisseur of menus at this point. Um, if by connoisseur menus you mean, do I hope that I never see another one again? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but when you walk in a restaurant now, I see them very differently. Right. And so, what do you see? What what what's a good menu? What's a bad menu? Or just what do you like? What do you not like? Well, I don't know. It's not. It's not. It's not so much good and bad for me. Is it? Is um. I think you know, and this is maybe a cliche, but one of the things in talking to all the chefs that I worked with with this book, and especially with Roy. Um, is the way that, um, you know, most chefs don't say that they put a menu together. They don't say that they 
assemble a menu. They all say that they write a menu. Um, and that really called my attention, a really basic idea, to the way that menus um, are narrative um, and, that they're, and that they're stories and that they're a chef's attempt to tell uh, a series of different kinds of stories. The story of their own life, it's their biography, uh, it's the story of their city, it's the story of their ingredients, um, you know, what have you. But menus as storytelling, I think that's something that now when I go out um, and I pick up a menu, that's what I'm looking for. It's like, what stories are being told? What, are the, what is the chef trying to communicate? And so like with all stories, some are better than others. Some have more drama, some have more spectacle, some have more intimacy. Um, and I think that's something I, I pay attention to more now. This story is important in everything. It, it's, it's why we need to identify the characters when we start here, for instance. That's right. What, what's happening? Why are we motivated? Um, you know, I always, for me, a menu is one of the first things you come in contact with, but not the first. You know, I always say when you walk into a restaurant, if it doesn't smell good, leave. Yeah, right. And that includes if it smells like, like floor cleaner or whatever. That's not, you know, I don't like that. You leave. Um, but it is interesting. It, and it's, and you know, the, the theatrics of it, they'll spend a fortune on, um, you know, reclaimed wood or whatever or design. But um, anyway, menus are important. I guess that's the point of what I'm trying to say and what this book is trying to say. Yeah. And certainly now I think it's also interesting that increasingly, um, you know, the idea of a menu that, um, is that feels permanent to a diner uh, is not something that, that a lot of people want anymore. I mean, more and more uh, people, you know, people want to feel like their menus are being um, handwritten or printed that day because the ingredients have changed, um, you know, because something is, is fresh today that it wasn't there tomorrow versus a laminated menu that's been the same menu for the past five or, you know, 10 years is something that I think in contemporary food consciousness, um, people raise their eyebrows at more. That's true. You know, I, I know that, but I hadn't put that together with this, that some of these menus were probably the same for a long time. They just oh, had to yeah. put stickers over the prices or something. <laughs> exactly. We've got a couple menus in the book where you can see them, either stickers. There's one for Golden Bird Fried Chicken where they're just crossed out. Wow. And then uh, also, of course, there's this there's a sort of Aunt Jemima image here, old Dixie. Yeah. yeah. Um, that was an important, a really important, um, for me, a major... Um, a major theme of this book and a major theme of, of the research we did was to, to really use these menus um, to, to better understand and call attention um, to, to issues of race uh, and ethnicity and how menus were part of a larger history um, of racial inequality and racism um, uh, in the city. Go on. Uh, just by looking at how these menus re kind of represent um, uh, various communities. So in the, in the case of the old Dixie menus, um, there's a whole series of menus in the book um, that were white-owned restaurants that um, uh, offered up what they called Southern food that was really a kind of a romantic uh, nod back to plantation food um, and used stereotypical caricatures of African-Americans um, on the cover of the menu um, uh, to represent what I, ca I started calling them minstrel menus. Mm. Um, and it wasn't just African-American, um, but you see this with Asian-American, um, you know, menus, uh, white-owned restaurants that were using stereotypes of Asian-Americans, like the Maxi Singapore Spa that we have in the book. Um, uh, and, you know, kind of along that line, that it, it, they're indicators, um, 
so often when people in Los Angeles, at least, talk about menu history and restaurant history, they go back to, let's say, the, the, the glory days of, of, of the 1940s and look at really attracted by mod- the modernist architecture of mid-century restaurants, um, that I think there's been a lot of lionization of a restaurant culture mid-century that forgets that these were, for the most part, segregated restaurants um, and that these were places that did not serve African-Americans. Um, and so I wanted to um, write a book that actually made sense for a, the contemporary city of Los Angeles that is, um, uh, you know, obviously a multiracial city um, that still grapples with, uh, with various um, uh, levels of, of racial inequality and segregation, uh, but I wanted these menus to kind of speak some truth um, to the identity of, this, of, of, of the modern city. Hmm. Well, it's almost like in order for people to try a different food, they it's almost like you need to present some kind of easy-to-grasp stereotype right. so they'll feel, oh, I understand this now, and then they'll come. Sure. But then, of course, it's offensive and people don't like being, you know, obviously, you know, you could imagine if, I don't know, whatever, throw out whatever stereotype of whatever, whoever you are, if it's you being stereotyped, you're not going to like it very much. I mean, I guess I'm just summarizing. Yeah, I mean, I think like in the case of Los Angeles and the case, let's say, of of restaurants that uh, offered up what they called Southern cooking or Southern food, it was a kind of romantic throwback that in a way was, um, you know, was a way for white diners to not deal with contemporary black culture and black politics in the city. Mm. So that, you know, you could go dine uh, at a, at a a restaurant that had a kind of mammy uh, or Aunt Jemima figure on the cover of the menu uh, at the same time that you had working class African-Americans eating at their own restaurants um, you know, in different neighborhoods, and those worlds never met. Um, and so I'm really, I, I think both in, in the music world, you saw this, you saw very similar similar things at work. Um, these kind of, you know, mythic representations of people um, that are used as a way for uh, folks to not deal with the realities of, of, of life in the city. Why didn't they want to deal with it? Well, this is, pre, you know, it's pre-civil rights uh, Los Angeles. And I think that um, there was a lot of civic unrest um, and a lot of struggle, and racism was alive and well in Los Angeles, like it was everywhere, you know, everywhere else around the country at that time. Um, and you know, it's a lot easier to sit down at a table that restores your idea of what racial harmony looks like and what kind of racial order looks like than deal with the changing racial order of the times. Do you? I remember when my my father was always taking us to. Um you know, most people when the Lakers played at the Forum, you you know, a lot of people, very few people who lived in the African American communities around the Forum went to games at the Forum. It cost a lot of money, so the basically people like us from the Valley would drive, you know, and and you would just get off the highway, drive up Manchester, and go into the parking lot of the Forum. But my father was so. Uh, hungry for everything that we would go to some of the you know barbecue joints around there that had the bulletproof glass and all that and you know it was obviously great food i think i want to say walkers but i don't know if that's the right place but um and uh but the, the thing you would feel going in there was 
there was some, oh, uh, you know, are we intruding? Is this okay? Are they hostile to are they, right? Are they hostile to us? Um, and I, I just, I, it's, it's, I wonder if these, the, the restaurants that were for the people in whatever neighborhood or limited to the ethnicity, and to this day I wonder this, do they want, you know, I want to say the word interlopers, but is is there like, no, this is ours, or is it, especially now where it's it's like, um, you know, it's like a, a, a hunting game of like, trying to find the new place that your friends haven't been to is it it's almost like we will you hipsters just stay the hell out of here right right well and i think that the the kind of racial makeup of of those hipsters of course has changed where it's not just you know That's white true. you know young white kids who are doing this it's, it's 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 kids of all different backgrounds um uh, but but I think that that's something that that idea is something that that I was interested in with these menus is and, I, and that I think these menus really really underline uh, is the extent to which restaurants and food um, can on the one hand um, function as bridges I mean it's through a dish that we can get to understand another culture this is a that, that's an idea that goes yeah. back to history of food right um, but at the same time I think restaurants and food can also function as barriers. Um, that they can be places for communities to gather up, um, for people to kind of restore and cement a sense of who we are uh, versus who others are. And so I think in a way, and again, like music, it functions in the same way, that there's a kind of borderlands quality to a restaurant um, that's about preserving community but also opening it up. Um, and to, and to really answer your question, I think you'd have to do like a, a and it would be fascinating to do a series of, you know, ethnographic interviews with restaurant owners right. about how they feel. Um, you know, I think my guess is most people are happy when there's more people eating at their restaurant, right? Yeah. You know, um, and the money's coming in, uh, and they want, you know, I, I've yet to meet a chef who doesn't want people of all backgrounds to enjoy his or her food. Right. It's funny that that was the feeling that you had to walk through in order to enjoy it or, you know, or the feeling we had. And, you know, obviously things have changed in so many ways um, and, and some they haven't. But, you know, you're, you're talking about music a lot. And, you know, I dealt with this uh, in, in my book, you know, chefs are the new rock stars and the sort of comparison to rock and roll, which I think is extremely similar, m- more so than people realize. Um, especially in that, you know, the kind of, well, first of all, the technological changes that allowed it to, that allowed rock and roll to become the dominant art form, which is basically, you know, the transistor radio, the long playing record, the electric guitar, all of that that happened in the 50s, and then television. And um, and then with, with uh, food, uh, my argument is it was sort of cable TV, which allowed the Food Network and others to really, you know, work their way into the, the heart of America to kind of spread this you know, the gospel of what was happening in Los Angeles and San Francisco and New York and Chicago, everywhere in the in the 90s. And then finally, you know, where we are now. And also that people that that rock and roll kind of has had it had its day, you know, the the classic era of, you know, um, whatever, 1950 something to arguably, you know, 1980 or maybe if you want to include Nirvana, 1991. Um and that while there's still great rock and roll bands, the innovation seems to have stalled. 
Maybe because there's not. Maybe because it has been played out. The form has been uh, explored, and and I feel that that's what's happening with food now. And I, I know the your menu stop. What was the latest one is in the eighties. Yeah, you know, and I just wonder if if that's where we are with you know if we are with food where we were with rock and roll in nineteen eighty. Like, you know, they're not minting that many more you know household names. Um, the it's like we've kind of talked about what else is there to talk about you know i mean it's i mean the menus are interesting but um the menus aren't food and it's like this sort of endless geek-like fascination with you know who played bass on this album or you know where did this sous chef used to work and where is this i don't know if you've sensed any of that it's something i'm 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 thinking of working on a piece about whether or it's done what's done the kind of um, fascination with food and, and foodieism. Oh well, that might be. I don't know. I mean, I, I can say a couple of things. I mean, one, we, you know, I stopped the the, the book in the eighties, um, really just as a kind of practical logistical endpoint because I knew that if we went any farther, we're going to have to deal with the you know constantly changing food landscape of the present moment. Right. Um, and and that wouldn't work. And 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 this really is a kind of somewhat of a clean century. So we're going from you know, roughly 18, late 1870s um, uh, into the 1980s. Um, and that gives us a nice kind of period and window, which, you know, um, we always like um, as scholars. Um, uh, but I also think it's, it's also, it ends at that moment of the so-called California food revolution. Uh, it ends at the moment that is, that, that really, and this gets to your point, I think that, that really does though start to reorganizing, that starts to reorganize what food means in the contemporary moment. So when you have people starting to really embrace um, a movement against industrialized food, um, start to support small farms, um, uh, start to support um, talking about where your food is sourced, using fresh local ingredients, um, obviously the work of Alice Waters um, in Northern California that really starts to influence what happens in Southern California in the 1980s. All of that has, um, you know, that, that radically altered um, food in Los Angeles and really changed uh, and set the kind of foundation for, for, for the contemporary moment. Um, and so I think that revolution in the 80s is crucial. Um, but I also think something else, and to try to use your rock comparison, uh, you know, is that what you also have now is just in the way that rock is just, I, I think you could say one of many genres that, that um, one can talk about, not as a dominant one anymore. Um, I think it has a lot to do also with, with, with changing demographics, uh, with um, kind of changing consciousness about the cultural makeup of this country. Um, that rock, even though it began as a, as a, as a black musical form, really becomes known as, as a quote-unquote white music. Um, that now you can't talk about that as a dominant musical form in a city like Los Angeles. You've got to talk about banda music. You've got to talk about K-pop. Um, you've got to talk about an endless variety of, of popular music genres that correspond to the endless variety of, uh, you know, cultures represented in the city. And similarly, I think you see that in the food world where, um, what used to be the center is now kind of splintered, uh, into this, um, heterogeneous, um, constantly changing, um, always infused by a new, uh, you know, a new wave of immigration. I mean, that's what drives this city's food. Uh, and one of the things that I think you see, um, if you look historically, 
is in the early early 1900s when the LA Times, for example, would cover the food scene of Los Angeles, they would talk about all the quote unquote foreign food elements that mm. you, you know you don't have to leave uh, downtown Los Angeles. Uh, uh, you know you can go around the world without leaving downtown, um, and it always was celebrating. Um, you know, restaurants that were from Hungary or from Mexico or from China, um, but always doing it as th- that this was foreign food. It was it was something that was foreign to the city. Right. Again, to them, us. them and us, them and us. Them and, us. Yeah. and now you want to talk about what is the heart and soul of contemporary Los Angeles cooking? It's 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 all of the quote, what used to be called foreign food that is now at everyone understands is now at the very center. That is what Los Angeles is. Right. Um, and I think that like someone like Roy Choi, you know, that's in part why I reached out to him is he gets that so, so, um, it's so in his heart. He so fully understands the, um, way that the changing racial and ethnic and class makeup of Los Angeles, um, is at the center of what the future of the city is going to be. Well said. And by the way, I just found, I was looking through here and I found the Hangman's Tree Cafe. Yeah. Yes, yes. And the the tree looked familiar. Now, is it going to say something that the, the, the Sagebrush Cantina in Calabasas is right next to a hangman's tree, which is next to the oldest house in the San Fernando Valley, the Leonis Adobe. Right. And so reading here uh, the text, um, Hangman's Tree Cafe on Ventura Boulevard, dash, named after an old west hangman's tree in Calabasas. Yes. Thankfully, just went with the drawing of the tree in an empty loop of rope instead of reproducing the corpse, et cetera. So I, I, I'm not going to I'm not going to accuse this uh, of sort of promoting <laughs> any kind of racial hangings. But what I think is maybe there's some connection between the Hangman's Tree Cafe and the Sagebrush Cantina, just to sort of revisit our old uh, conversation. Um, I'm going to look into this. I need to find out more about the Hangman's Tree Cafe. Yeah. Well, the menu is the menu is very very interesting. Oh, it is. What else do you? So it's a, it's a hangman's tree and it says jail fair where you should ha- hang out too. Lousy food, warm beer, and cocktails. Sneering service. Yeah. The the um, all the dishes had a you know the the owner wrote it with a um, a sense of humor. I think I say in the book that it sounded like he'd rather be uh, at Ciro's doing a set. Um, and but but that tree, that hangman's tree. I mean, it, it kind of puts you. Um, back into that history of, of, you know, the forging of the West. It puts you back into the history of, uh, you know, of lynchings of all kinds of, you know, very not not only racial lynchings but other kinds of lynchings. Right. And um, you know, the jail fair that it talks about was a, a minor trend in Los Angeles culinary history. Um, I don't have the menu for it in the book, um, but we but I do talk about it. There was a restaurant called the Jail Cafe on Sunset Boulevard um, that opened in the 1920s that actually was built to look like a jail. Um, there was a, a guard who stood over the door um, as you walked in and looked down on you from a watchtower, and you ate dinner inside of a jail cell um, served by waiters wearing inmate stripes. And you and I both know that that sounds fucking awesome, and we would both go to that place if it was open <laughs> now. <laughs> I, I think you. I think I might have to let you go, and, oh. inst- and and I would look at your Instagram feed, Alan. That's awesome. Um, <laughs> Two things I, w- I wanted to talk about before we wrap up, which is um, the Brown Derby. Yes. It's, it's always been a mystery to me uh, why the Brown Derby doesn't still exist. I mean, I know the building was there and they've tried different things, but they don't call it, you know, the big hat and the whole thing. Like, right. you know, w- why isn't that there anymore? It just seems like the most iconic restaurant ever. Yeah. 
I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I think, you know, there's probably tons of uh, practical reasons. You could go f- look through the Brown Derby, um, the various Brown Derby books um, in terms of the family yeah. funding and whatnot. But I also think it's the end of a kind of, um, you know, a, uh, an era of dining in Los Angeles that it was hard to sustain. I mean, this was a very Hollywood-driven uh, restaurant that really catered to, um, you know, the upper classes um, that had that old kind of sense of entertainment society culture um, that that had its day. Um, but I'm not sure that it, it, it was something that could be sustained um, in the present moment unless in a kind of retro way. And there's certainly some restaurants have lasted like Dantana's that are like that. Yeah. Um, you know, or like the, you know, the Dresden room, but, but something with the caliber of the Brown Derby. Well, what, what did the Brown Derby mean in its day to Los Angeles? I mean, I know there's, it's, you know, there's probably histories written about it, but you know, just, just in looking at the menus you've presented here, did it connote this is the place? I don't think, I mean, to my eyes, at least the, in terms of what it offered food wise, um, you know, beyond the kind of, uh, you know, the Cobb salad, um, uh, you know, as the invention, you know, allegedly invented at the Brown Derby, um, you know, it, it represented a kind of a standard continental, uh, you know, up, kind of upscale continental menu um, that mixed in, you know, American fare and chops and steaks and, you know, that kind of a thing. So food wise, I, I don't think it did anything um that, you know, screamed Los Angeles or screamed a particular era in that way. But it was more kind of what it represented socially in terms of, again, its connection to Hollywood, that, that, that it was a clubhouse. Um, and I, I just don't know. It's hard to sustain that right now. It's not really what people are looking for, is my sense, um, you know, in the contemporary city. The only menu I recognize is El Torito, 1979. Yeah. Um. If you had asked me if this was still the menu at El Torito, I'd probably say that it is. It, it pro- it's probably very close. It shows a sort of fountain and an old kind of Spanish scene. That's right. um, what didn't I ask you that everybody else asks you? <laughs> that is great journalism, my friend. Uh, I think we covered a lot of bases. Well, that's the good thing about this format. It, 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 you know, you can actually talk a little bit and and unwind things a bit. Um, I mean, you know, one thing I, I do think is worth pointing out that is, you know, because this is a project of the public library, and, yeah, and actually getting to a question you asked a little bit ago about c- kind of contemporary foodie culture and and that kind of a thing is is, um, you know, oh, oh, oh and and the Food Network. Is I do think it's interesting uh, that you know you're talking about the kind of let's say the rise of the Food Network, the rise of this new contemporary culture of kind of food obsession um, uh, that that you know obviously a platform like Instagram is helping to fuel and you know people I think talk about food it seems now more than ever in a in a kind of mainstream way um, is at the same time that that's happening and more restaurants are opening every day and more people are talking about food et cetera et cetera. Um, you've also got, you know, astronomical um, hunger issues um, in cities across this country. Um, and in a city like Los Angeles, we have huge hunger problems. Um, and so there is this disparity between um, a booming food culture um, and a widening food gap um, with food, so-called food deserts and food apartheid running throughout the city that, you know, for us, when we did this, to do this project through the public library, we did not want this to be a kind of nostalgia trip or only be a nostalgia trip back to restaurants past. 
but to hopefully get contemporary readers to think about issues of economics, to think about issues of race, uh, of changing demographics, so that food becomes, uh, among the many things that it can be in our lives, um, that it can be part of our kind of social consciousness um, about um, the struggles of the contemporary city. But how did you do that? Because it seems, I mean, it is a nostalgia trip. Well, I don't think so. I mean, I think it can be a nostalgia trip, that's, and that's wonderful if it is. But I, I tried to write it so it wasn't like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I you know, I, I feel strongly that my text isn't a kind of, um, you know, it's not a romantic vision of restaurants past, but it's trying to use restaurants as ways to understand some, you know, major social, political, and cultural issues that I think are still central to the contemporary city. Right. So the message to listeners is don't just buy the book for the pretty pictures. Read the stuff that Josh wrote. <laughs> there the it is. Pictures. That's what it's called. Um, it is a beautiful book. Um, and so what, what events are you participating in around it? So we've got we've got a bunch. So we have, um, I mean, the biggie is we've got an exhibition uh, that is uh, launching on the 13th of June. Um, that is um, really more kind of both based on the book, but also just based on the collection in general. It's a, um, a major exhibition that uses the menus uh, and archival photographs of restaurants and restaurant workers from the library's collection um, to kind of um, bring out some of these issues. Uh, that also includes a, a series of contemporary artists in Los Angeles who are making art uh, inspired by food and restaurants. Um, and we also, and it's going to include an initiative we call my LA menu, where we have blank menus where people across the city can, are being encouraged to, to write their own menus, um, with the assignment, uh, being, you know, how would you describe your city? How would you describe your Los Angeles, uh, in a menu? Um, and that'll all be part of the exhibition and that opens on the 13th. We've got events, uh, conversation I'm doing on June 14th. Um, at the public library uh, with a um, series of, sh- of chefs, uh, Joaquim Splichal, uh, Ricardo Diaz, and Cynthia Hawkins. We'll be talking about uh, menus and food culture. And then in July, uh, doing an event uh, specifically on um, hunger issues uh, and kind of food politics and food organizing in the city, which will be great. Um, and then we've got some other stuff uh, scattered throughout the summer that, that are, that's going to culminate in a big public event. Uh, that we're doing in August that uh, uh, we're just starting to, 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 to shape. Hmm. Um, well, in August, there's also an L.A. food festival, I'm pretty sure. So maybe it'll be along with that. Um, I hope to get there to one of those. I'll be in L.A. in June. Thank, thanks so much for, for making the time to talk about this. It's, it's a great project. And, you know, it, it's besides that I'm happy that people – who are in academia actually are doing stuff that everybody can approach. Um, I'm glad the public library is um, being mined and used and can be appreciated for the great work that it does. Um, This is Alan Salkin. I've been talking to Josh Kuhn. Uh, This is New Books and Food, part of the New Books Network at newbooksnetwork.com, where there are interviews with authors on every subject you can imagine. It's a great site. Check it out to find recipes and other material related to what we talked about today. Check out cookbooks.about.com, the about.com website for which I am the cookbooks and food writing expert. My website is alansalkin.com, A-L-L-E-N-S like Sam, A-L-K-I-N. All my social media is Alan Salkin. Also, Instagram, Facebook is facebook.com slash Salkin. Twitter is Alan Salkin. I think you can find me. Guess what? My name's Alan Salkin. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.